if you ever looked in puddles on a sidewalk after a rainy day, you'll realize that even a puddle a couple millimeters deep can reflect perfectly everything that you look at. So the, the lesson here is that it only takes about a millimeter of water to be able to reflect an entire world from another person's view or from your view. And so what you have to understand is that no matter how deep you are, no matter how shallow you feel you are, you are still capable of reflecting the whole life of experiences that you have. You're still capable of, of, of providing that, that insight, that view of, of, of all that information. You're still capable of immense, immense value. Where are the answers I see? Where are the hopes I need? Answer this for me. Help me to believe. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Plain Ordinary Dragon Podcast. We're so glad you're here today. Time's most precious resource any of us have, and the fact that you choose to spend some of yours with us is humbling. So thank you. Now, I want to get right back into it because last week we left off with part one of Eric Schulte's uh, podcast episode and there was so much good stuff in there and this week is no exception uh, part two is just as good as part one a little bit more tech talk in here but there's a lot of really good stuff uh, as you heard in the initial county in the pre-roll i think they call it you heard some some words of wisdom and there's a lot more of that in here so i want to get right into it i will see you after the show yeah I like that. And what I find most gratifying about this conversation is that looking back over the time you and I have known each other, this feels finally tremendously like we've come full circle. This conversation feels a lot like the very first conversation you and I ever had when we met. You know, I'd met her on the internet and we'd, we'd met and we'd, uh, we'd fallen in love and, and there we were living in a little place in uh, Arkansas because that's where she happened to be. I was in Iowa, which I thought, you know, at that time was pretty, pretty bland. But once I moved to Arkansas, I realized was probably the height of industrial society uh, in comparison. Uh, no, no, no slam on either States. I've, I've lived in both. I'm just saying, I'm just saying as a young person, that was my view. And uh, so there I was, and, and I, we had to figure out a job and I ended up working for this box factory where, you know, getting a job at this box factory where basically you just kind of create things like cereal boxes and oil filter boxes and toilet ring boxes and all the cardboards cut out and glued together and all the printing's done. And then you have this box and you send off these pallets and pallets and pallets of boxes that then these companies will put their product in to ship out. And I'm getting ready to go out this job. And my wife says, Hey, she says, I, one thing before you go, she says, uh, I think that I think one of my friends, this guy I know works there. Uh, she said, keep an eye out for him. And uh, if you if you ask around, or I don't know if he works in the same shift as you, but keep an eye out for a guy named Elliot if you see him. And I, she says, I think you'll I think you'll get a kick out of him. I said, All right, well, you know, I'm I'm heading out the door. I'm grabbing my lunchbox. I'm tying up my hair. I'm doing my shit. I'm like, okay, well, cool, thanks. I'll I'll keep an eye out. And uh, and the crazy thing is, uh, I never found Elliot. I didn't really think to look for him because I got distracted uh, a few hours after my shift started, and I ended up spending the whole night talking to this other fellow that I had met and didn't even get the chance to look for Elliot. And uh, if you want, I'll, I'll let you pick it up from there. Well, who, uh, who was the other person you met? I'm interested to know. Do you remember? Well, uh, I do. I, I had started working on this machine called a gluer. Uh-huh. And it was the first time I'd ever done it. It was an incredibly frustrating job. And across the belt from me was this kind of cocky guy that really knew how to put these boxes together and grab them all up into a pile and stuff them into this box. And I thought, well, this guy's kind of, you know, this guy's kind of just got his shit together and kind of knows it. And, and, uh, boy, I don't know. We, we just started up a conversation and, and before you know it, that initial sort of veneer had shattered and I ended up talking to this guy, just, just an amazingly deep and insightful guy came from a, came from a family, old, uh, had uh, five kids. His dad worked at pace. And we just we just spent the whole night talking, and I never did it. I never did. Uh, I never did. Know to remember to go look for Elliot. 
so the 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 fun the fun part about this particular story that Eric is telling everybody here is that um, is that that person actually was me. So uh, we were working on this this machine, like he said, called a gluer. And these machines, how long would you say they were? Were they forty yards long, something like that? Oh well, you know they they came in parts. So I mean, if you if you talk about just the part that you and I worked on, yeah, that was about twenty twenty or twenty five feet. But really, the whole machine spanned, you know across some angles it was it was a pretty it was fairly long fairly long machine yeah i'd say yeah. i'd say definitely in the neighborhood of you know, a couple dozen yards yeah anyway and so the way that these machines work because um just to give everybody kind of a viewpoint here is you would have one person who was what they called the feeder and they would sit at the at the or stand at the very front and feed in the boxes that would then be manipulated by the machine as it went through that got folded and glued and so forth and then at the end of that machine they would all spit out and then you would have what they called inspectors on the belt right and you'd have one on each side of the belt and it was just a conveyor belt you know just like from like i love lucy you know the famous chocolate episode that kind of thing just a conveyor belt that just yeah. kept going and your job was to keep up with all of the boxes that were coming out. And you had to scoop them up X amount of sections at a time. Uh, and you needed to also inspect them. And then you put them in a bigger corrugated box and then taped them up and sent them down the belt to another section where they got taped up and put on skids and, and taken off. Well, the interesting thing oh, is... Oh, God. Is, yeah. Just, just <laughs> one of the worst ways to learn a living. <laughs> oh, well, we could have worked at pace. And in fact, I think you did and decided not to, didn't you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was that was literally Hell's Kitchen. <laughs> Indeed. So what you happened know, was, is that... I think your dad must have had like skin of iron. But anyway, yeah, <laughs> I don't know how he made it so many years there, except for he knew that that uh, it was oh, what my God. provided for his family. So he did what needed to be done. But it was a horrific environment. Um, yeah. And I, I'm sure at some point when dad comes on the show we'll talk about it to some degree i know we talked about it some with james white's episode because that's where dad and yeah. james met but I'm getting sidetracked here so basically yeah, i can't wait to hear Lo i can't i can't wait to hear lloyd's episode yeah go ahead <laughs> yeah no kidding um what would happen is is that you'd have these three positions on this machine and you would just rotate every i don't know so many hours so it was fair so everybody got some time boxing stuff everybody got some time feeding stuff because feeding is what you really wanted to do because all you really had to do was feed stuff in and of course we worked the graveyard shift and because we worked the graveyard shift uh you know you were always a little tired but the funny thing about those machines is is that if something just got off a little bit and a box got hung in there then what would happen is is all the little boxes that were coming out after it have no place to go and the machine would just start spitting all these boxes into the air and it was almost like a like a box fountain if you would you know or and so the the person who's yeah. feeding all that stuff they have a big red button by them and they have to slam that button to stop the production to keep that from happening but because we were at graveyard shift sometimes you fall asleep as a feeder because it was pretty boring it was just less work it was less physical work than than inspecting and so you can find people that fall asleep at the feeder and the, the machine would get jammed and you would just see these fountains of uh, of boxes flying everywhere but the thing that was interesting was is that we didn't rotate that entire night. Basically what happened was is that Eric ended up on the other side of the belt from me. And we started talking about you know, everything because you just talk to whoever's there, uh, you know, provided that they're willing to talk. There are some people that don't like to, but Eric and I both just started talking about, I don't know, life and philosophy and all these different things that you know, you, you wouldn't really think you would find in a box factory but it was it was such an invigorating conversation and it was kind of funny because i don't remember both of us had the only way you could get the job at the box factory was through temp work and so i don't i don't remember i'm i don't know which one of us had already been hired on i can't remember i guess i got hired on before you did full time but i don't remember if i yeah, had it would have been if I had my blue shirt that had my name on it at the time, I don't remember any of that. But the thing that was important, the thing that was interesting, the the, the kismet of this meeting that is so uh, fun is that we had this great conversation. Like it was exciting to talk to you during that time, especially because, you know, we worked yeah, in a box same. factory. It's not any fun. I mean, let's <laughs> let's be honest. You know, you're you're standing around most of the time. Your feet hurt. You know, you're not you're not being paid really a whole lot. Although you could work your way up to making a decent wage, and you know, it was not 
it wasn't what you envisioned your life is necessarily going to be. Um, and oh, it, it's just it was, it's mind numbing work too. I mean, eight to twelve hours a day of literally just performing the exact same physical task that takes about you know seven or eight seconds to make a cycle of it, and you just literally do that for hours upon hours. Yeah, it's just terrible work. So it was very refreshing for us to have that conversation. And when we left the floor that morning uh, around uh, eight o'clock or so, we were both going to check, you know, to clock out. And, you know, I just remember thinking to myself, man, this is great because I finally found somebody that I can talk with here (laughs) that, you know, it's not just about unions and it's not just about, you know, hunting. And because I remember Raymond, man, that guy used to have all these crazy stories about deer and hunting and, you know, nobody believed any of his stories, but they were entertaining to listen to. But you know, they just, they weren't real like that conversation. So I was really energized at, at the end of that. I was like, that is, this is fun. I, I've met somebody I really can connect with. And, and at the time, you know, you did, you had really long hair and I had really short hair, which is something that, that changed later in life and went vice versa. But, you know, you had, you were this long haired, you know, person that just had no real fear of discussing anything, which was refreshing. Anyway, we were going to clock out. And uh, as we clocked out, I guess you saw my name or something and, and you were, oh, I think I asked you what your, what your name was so that we could get back together or something like that. And you're like, oh, I'm Eric. I'm like, I'm Elliot. And he was like, Wait, you're Elliot? I was like, yeah. She yeah. Was like, oh, my yeah. wife, my wife told me that I should look you up. <laughs> Wait, who's your wife? And he's like, oh, it's it's Barbara. And I was like, what? Because I didn't even know Barbara had gotten married because we had lost touch. This is one of those things that we were talking about. Barbara and I had lost touch. Yeah. And so I I didn't I didn't go to your wedding. I I wasn't invited because I didn't you know. Of course, I don't even know if Barb liked me enough back then to invite me. But you know the the thing was is that it was just it was this weird moment where I'm like, wait, Barb's married to you and we met and and so forth and <laughs> thereon began a, a really long and and fruitful relationship because we've we've had yeah. so many interesting things <laughs> uh throughout the years yeah i got home that morning and barb's like well did you look for elliot i'm like no i i didn't actually she's like what did you do i said well i ended up talking to elliot all night <laughs> Uh, that's funny. So it was quite the kismet of a meeting. Yeah, it really was. It, it kind of just grew from there. You know, now I, I think it's fair to let the audience in a little bit on what has transpired here. Uh, obviously you and Barb met online. Yeah, it was, it's been one of the most amazing relationships I've ever seen in my life because of just how in sync and how much you two really, really fit together. You know, you'd ask either one of you and you both have the same, this is a life defining moment. I think it's fair to say that that what was happening at the time when you and I met was Barb was working on her degree. She was trying to become a teacher, if I remember correctly. And so she was going to school. Uh, You had moved down from Iowa, obviously, to Arkansas. You were trying to financially support her while she was going through school. And it was a little bit challenging too, right? Because she had been divorced and had kids from, from the first marriage. Uh, and so you were integrating yep. into what we would today call a blended family, I guess, uh, you know, before we really oh had, those, had those terms. But one of the things that I found really interesting was that, you know, the box factory wasn't the only place that you were working. You did a lot of different things. Uh, I remember at one point you were working at a Christmas tree farm. You always like, it was yes. amazing to me the oh. the sheer dedication that you had to support Barb and the kids while she was going through school. And I, and I understand the, perspective that you guys were doing but let me just say you know especially at at that time that for someone as young as you were because what you and barb met when you were what 23 is that what you said yeah you know for someone to take on that type of responsibility so young in in some respects i mean well and i wasn't the the thing you got to really to dial it into perspective the thing you got to understand is that i was somebody at that point who had no concept of reality at all or of responsibility at all i was not what you would consider a responsible person. Like I said before, I had pretty much been raised to understand that I didn't have any boundaries. I could do whatever I want, whenever I wanted, and you know, none of it really mattered regardless. And now there were so 
many firsts that came with that one coherent coalescent moment in my life it was my first love my first real love it was first time i was a husband it was the first time i was a father or a parent it was the first time i was a a caregiver or or a provider or a breadwinner it was the first time i had taken on that assumed that obligation that sense of obligation towards somebody else it was the first time i'd really been concerned about somebody else besides myself in my life so many things were just completely, completely, completely the first time that I'd ever done any of those things. And that's kind of why I said in terms of going back to our, the central theme of this episode, which is, which is apparently connections. That's why I say, really, I feel like I was born at, at about 23, 24 and have just lived the life of who I am now since then. And that's why I say it's interesting how sometimes these moments in your life can become these almost these moments of rebirth where, where you just are redefined and you're not the same person and but that you can kind of look at your life as as saying that's where really the person that I am started and and for me that was definitely that moment and so, she's been she's been a part of how I became that person that I always wanted to be ever since I I owe pretty much all the all the strengths and all the things that I that I am today that I'm proud of that I'm most proud of were really were really because she was in my life and there's there's no there's no way getting away around that yeah, you you two have have been amazing partners together. It's and it's been something to watch. And it's not to say that you guys didn't have challenges, uh, and 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 some of those um, were pretty pretty big stressors in life. There have been some amazing things. That well, I want to I want to be clear. You're right. I want to I want to be clear that those challenges were not emotional challenges between us. They were the challenges of two people that are just thrown against the wall of life. And, and had to just together figure out whatever the hell it was to get through it. Barb and I have never in our lives once ever had, uh, you know, uh, an argument or, a, or strife between ourselves to the point where the relationship was ever in danger. That's the unique thing about our relationship is that every one of the challenges that you can talk about that we've gone through have always been the challenges of what life has done to the two of us and what the two of us together have always done to overcome it. It has never once in 27 years ever been a challenge of us being together. I, I can attest to that. Which I feel is kind of unique. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. There's, um, uh, because most of those challenges, uh, none of which I, I feel uh, are appropriate to discuss here, um, but you know, a lot of those challenges, you know, I watched from the outside, and and I can say that you're right. It, it has always been about, uh, you know, what happens in life, and I think that's probably true to some degree in most relationships as well. Uh, you know, that's that's why people talk about you know getting past the honeymoon period, uh, and then the real marriage begins or the real relationship begins. And so it, it has been. It has been nice to watch uh, the way that you two have tackled everything that has come your way uh, in life, for sure. Now you did a lot of odd and in jobs. Uh, you did. I mean, obviously, we talked about Box Factory. You all paced for a little while. I can't believe you remember that Christmas tree farm. That was one of the weirdest jobs I've ever had. But yeah, that was incredible. <laughs> well, you know, the thing is, dude, uh, to be honest, I just didn't get it. Like, I just didn't understand this crazy dedication. Like, you, you were just like, this is it. It wasn't like a question of commitment. It was just like, this is just, this is the job that I that I have to have right now to get this you know, move, move us forward. And I'm fine doing it uh, yeah. because this is, you know, this is what I have to do so that we can continue to do this. And, uh, you know, that I've always thought about that. Like sometimes when, when I want to model a good, you know, a, a committed relationship, I think about the things that you did, uh, early on with, with that, that whole situation. And I think, because I've never been someone who has had a, I've always been someone who has intellectually thought about things from both sides of the fence, and I have a real hard time committing and saying this is it. Uh, you know, my my wife likes to say that I haven't suffered enough. I haven't agonized enough over my decisions. You know, I'll make a decision, I'll continue to agonize over it for a long period of time. But I never saw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know it's true. Uh, I have I never saw yeah. that from you in regards to the relationship with Barb. It was always this very 
you know, it's like, this is done. There's no more decision. There's no more thought. This is it. This is done. And for me, that, yeah. that has always been an amazing thing to see because I've never really been able to do that well in my life uh, in a lot of different ways. Uh, yeah, I remember the Christmas tree farm. I remember, I remember, I mean, you always had these different odds and end jobs that you were doing and so forth, but there was one in particular and there's a moment in particular that changed the odds and ends jobs and, and, and that kind of thing. And that's when you were working at a diner. And I'm really interested in you telling that particular story because it did. It changed your whole interaction, your whole perspective, I guess, or maybe your whole drive. Uh, but I'd love for you to, to talk about working at the diner and how that was a pivotal moment in what was to come. It changed everything for me at that point. Yeah. Uh, because although I had, I had a strong sense of obligation that I had to accomplish something, what I had to accomplish was still not a clear or polished goal. And as you say, I went from one odd job to another doing whatever I could, however I could to support this future that I was trying to build. And I finally found myself at a diner making about four twenty-five an hour, bussing dishes and, and working the back kitchen on the second line for this diner in Harrison, Arkansas. And the guy that owned it was a, a fairly blunt spoken and, and just kind of rough hewn sort of fella. And I had recently started getting into this cool computers at that point had kind of been something you couldn't just get computers had always been these things that really only showed up on office buildings and, and small businesses because they're the only ones that could afford them. But it was right around that point. It was right at that level in, in our development of our society that computers were starting to become accessible to just your regular home user kind of folks. And I had found one because, of course, Barb and I met through technology. So I was always interested in it, you know, under the hood on the back line. And uh, one of her old classmates had a computer, like an old IBM, God, like a 386 or something, SX with uh, something like almost a whole gig of RAM, and uh, which was amazing at the time. And I think I scratched up like 300 bucks and I bought it. I actually had to make payments uh, at the time, but I, I managed to pay him off the 300 bucks that he wanted for this machine. And I started tinkering around with technology. And the more I did, the more I got kind of interested in it. And after a time, I just started really throwing myself into it in my off hours. And I sort of became that guy among my friends. See, at the time, all of my friends were kind of interested in technology too. But you always kind of know when you've hit that point where if you're interested in something that a bunch of your friends are, and they're the ones that now start coming to you with questions about this thing, you're like, oh, okay. So I finally kind of reached the, 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 the top of the heap, you know, at this point of the friends, like I'm the one that has really put the most time into this because now they're all the ones coming to me asking me how to fix this or implement this or whatever. Yeah, and so I was talking indeed. to the, uh, the manager of that diner and I said, man, you know, I think, I think I'm really, I ain't really digging this technology thing. I said, I wonder if I can make something out of that. And this guy without batting an eye says, ah, it'll never happen. So what do you mean that'll never happen? And with kind of one eye thrown back over his shoulder, he says, dude, you're never going to amount to anything. He was the kind of guy that could say something like that, half joking, but half serious. And I'll never know how he really meant that. But the fact is that like a spike driven right straight down through my entire personality, I just immediately, I went home that night after my shift. I remember it clearly. I walked into the house and I said, Barb, cut my hair. And I had, I had about two foot, I had about two foot of a two feet of ponytail at that point. I said, cut my hair. I said, I'm done. I said, nobody will ever, ever tell me that again, whether they mean it or not, whether they're joking or not, there is nobody that's ever going to tell me that again. I said, cut my hair. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to job doing something else. And I'm going to, I knew at that point, uh, at least in the near view, what my future was going to look like. And we had, we had a rough night. It was, it's hard to, it's hard to cut off two feet of hair. Unbelievably, it really becomes party and it's, it's hard to transition, but it was, it was another kind of awakening moment for me. We cut off, we cut off my hair and I went in the next day to a friend who cut hair for a living. He kind of helped fix it up a little bit and I went out, I got a job in technology. I never looked back and 20, 27 odd years later, here we still are. That's actually, that's one of those pivotal moments. 
You know, that's, uh, I think Anthony Robbins says something to the effect of it's like in moments like this, your destiny is shaped. I forget the exact quote, but, you know, it, it had a profound impact and you took action immediately. You went and did something that is hard to do yeah. because you spend a lot of time for, for anyone, women, men, uh, it, whatever the case may be. If you've spent time growing your hair, it, it, it can be a monumental challenge. It is a pain. It is hard to deal with. It's hard to keep up with. It well, you is. identify it, you know, becomes your identity too. You know, it feels like mm -hmm. this thing that you, that's permanent about you. It gives you this sense of like, this is who I am. This is who I've been for however long it took to, to, to become this person and grow this hair for that matter. It becomes kind of a, becomes kind of a metaphor for you in a way. And so it's interesting that, yeah. that you took action. Now, granted, you, you didn't go get a technology job the next day because you still had to study and learn. I, I remember going in, into the into the house where you were trying to get yeah. MCSE and you were, this is back when yeah. you, you watched things on videotape. I remember walking in, into the house there and oh, I, shit. On, on, on this on the CRT television, you know, 19 inch or whatever it was, you had paused it and a computer was all broken apart. And I was like, why are you, that doesn't make any sense to me. Why are you learning the, the <laughs> hardware, how all these things fit together? I don't, why? And you said, well, I'm studying for this test and I need this, I need this certification to be able to really, you know, put my, my foot in the door and so forth. And I went, and I remember thinking to myself, my God, why would anyone want to do something as boring as this looks like I couldn't I couldn't imagine something more boring to me at that moment than watching pieces of a computer go together I just didn't get it by any stretch of the imagination and so it was kind of mind-blowing to me that you were like yeah I really really want to do this and you did you really wanted to do that that was what you really wanted to do and I remember that we had conversations about that at the time as well mostly because of my un I just, it was so hard for me to understand seeing someone attack their dreams in that way when I didn't understand their dreams. And this was all part of me growing up, not, you know, the how I'm learning through, through all of this, uh, you know, obviously the irony is, is years later, I had to go to you when I had an opportunity to get into the information technology field, I had to go to you and be like, I need you to give me a crash course because I just accepted a job without knowing anything. Uh, can you teach me all that boring stuff about computers? <laughs> can confirm it was boring, but we made it. <sighs> so, yeah. So then you, you really, you really took off. We were living in Northwest Arkansas. And at that time there wasn't a lot of opportunity in the information technology world. You had to either work for a school or there were a few big businesses that could use, you know, computer, quote unquote, computer guys. Uh, I don't think information technology yeah. was really even a term that was kind of thrown around at that time. And it was and not. You had, you had a couple experiences. I mean, like you, you worked, uh, you know, trying to uh, with some folks putting in like a point of presence there and with a dial up and and so forth. And I don't think we need to get into all that. But what was interesting is that you then uh, decided that it was time to find something in this field and, and this area of Northwest Arkansas wasn't going to give that to you. And so you headed north by about an hour or so to uh, Springfield, Missouri, if I remember correctly. And I want to set the I want to set the perspective here for the audience because this is important. You didn't commute back and forth. You actually got a job up there and then you stayed with some friends uh, in, in an interesting environment to say the least while you were trying to make it happen that shows an amazing amount of dedication to be able to go okay we can't really i can't really afford a place up here right now but uh, i've got some some friends that I, I, i'm going to stay with and live with them while while i'm working in this field till i can get my feet underneath me. Uh, and, and you went through a number uh, of trials there before you were able to really kind of solidify yourself, but you did. And then you kind of made Springfield, Missouri your home for a while. Yeah. It was a, another grouping of firsts for me, you know, because it was the first time I'd gotten a job in tech. It was the first time I'd ever really struck out on my own without any idea uh, of knowing what was going to happen or any kind of safety net. And after having 
met the first person in my life that I knew I was going to spend the rest of it with. It was the first time that I had to leave them behind and not be able to see them the next day or the day after that, or even the week after that. And so that was incredibly difficult for me to, to strike out like that and say, okay, I'm going to go be somewhere else for a while. And, you know, we, she and I sat down, we were very realistic about it. We knew this is how it had to go. Uh, and so I went and lived for a month or so, just getting a job and getting the thing nailed down so we could get a house. And then that's what we did after, after a time I did finally end up getting my foot in the door someplace and I kind of got my feet underneath me and we ended up getting a place. And then she and the kids came up and, and we were together as a family again, but th that was an incredibly difficult, but necessary circumstance that we were that's one of those challenges i think that you probably talk about is it's just it was you know we just had to do we just had to take such extremes but no matter what they were we we did we the connection between us was strong enough that it really didn't matter i mean i drove back every uh, on the weekends but it was it's still difficult to be without the person you love especially at a very very difficult time in your life uh, when you don't feel like there's anything else around you or any safety net and you don't even have that uh, that connection with your partner other than just every seven days. Now, you guys built a pretty interesting life for yourselves up in, in, in Missouri. Uh, you know, you, you did. You worked for a number of, of corporations. You, you got your feet wet. Um, you went through a number of interesting experiences. And then you decided to kind of go out on your own. And you created a company at the time called Caltech, right? I did. Celtic Systems. Man, that was uh, – how did that come about? I think that was at the tail end of a – of a series of job experiences where after having gone through all these companies, there was a particular company that I ended up working at that was very fond of, they see they had, they were a, they were a company that offered a product and they had all these customers and, and they offered a technological product. They offered a scanning, a document scanning solution. And so they would sell this document scanning solution to all these customers, various places. They didn't really have anybody on staff that had hardware or network technical experience. They had all these software developers that would write this document scanning product. But they didn't really have anybody that knew anything other than just writing software. And so they hired me to be that kind of stopgap supporting uh, mechanism and to keep things at the home office running. And so the owner was fond of value, uh, adding value <laughs> to his sales by saying, hey, don't worry if there's any problems, I'll just send my guy over and he'll fix them for you. Now, this was unbeknownst to me. So this guy ended up, and so in addition to my eight hour, 10 hour a day job, I had to go to all of this guy's clients, pro bono, no money, just my regular, no overtime, I was just salary. So I ended up spending another four hours a day, pretty much most days, just tootling out to these various clients he had of his because he promised them, hey, if there's any problem, don't worry, we'll support him. And by we, he meant me. And by me, he meant at any time that anybody called ever. So I go over to these people's clients. And, you know, sometimes it's the problem with the software, but a lot of times you've been in the environment long enough to know this. A lot of times it's their own settings. It's their printers out of paper or their, you know, their mouse isn't plugged in or there's something actually wrong with the, the operating system or the computer itself. Nothing wrong with the software. But here I am fixing all their stuff. So eventually, the relationship between this guy and I went south, as you might imagine, because I didn't really like being treated that way. And when it did, and he and I finally parted ways uh, somewhat, somewhat abruptly and, and, uh, and extemporaneously, I will say, uh, I, believe I, I believe I called him out in the middle of his office uh, in, the, in the middle of a giant cube farm. Uh, I believe I loudly expressed some of, my, some of my more colorfully held opinions about him. <laughs> anyway, when that ended, I had to go to his customers. His customers would call me and they would say, hey, you know, this thing, this thing, we need you to come over. And I would have to tell his customers, listen, this is really awkward. I actually, I don't work with that company anymore. So I'm really sorry. You know, you're going to have to find some other way. And I think about the third customer that I was on the phone telling this to said, well, okay, but could you come over anyway? Because we really need this fix. And I'm like, well, I mean... <sighs> I mean, I don't have a job right now. So, I mean, yeah, I've got plenty of time to kill. And they're like, okay, we'll, we'll pay you. Just, just come out here and, and just fix this for us. Okay. So I go out there figuring, okay, well, this will be another you know, 50 bucks for groceries or whatever. So I, at least I can get some time to look for another job. And I go out there and I fix their thing. And they, and they say, well, you know, what, what do you want for this? I, said, I mean, I don't really have any idea. So they just came up with something that they felt was fair. And they gave it to me and I pocketed the cash and I went on my way. And another client, called me and said, Hey, we need you to come fix this thing. And I started going through the whole thing. Well, I can't really, I can't really come out and fix your stuff. And they're like, well, we were talking to the other business and they said, you came out and fixed their stuff. 
you know, can you just come out and fix ours? And I'm like, well, I mean, Josh, if it's something like that, they're like, we'll just, you know, we'll pay you too. Well, after about six or seven days later, Barb and I are sitting in the, in the dining room and she says, how's your job search going? And I said, God, I said, I haven't put in a single application. And she starts freaking out. She's like, why not? And I'm like, well, I've been so busy. <laughs> and at that moment, it occurred to me how ludicrous that sounded. And yet I was like, wait a minute. And she's like, do we have money? I'm like, yeah, we do. We've got, we've got money in the bank for bills. And she's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I, I'm going out to all these clients that, that I used to do for free. And they're just paying me to go do that. And she's like, do you think we should keep doing that? And I'm like, I don't know. Do you think we should? And at that moment, I thought, well, hell, let's just, keep, let's just see how far down this rabbit hole goes. And I, that was literally how my business, we just came up with a name. We talked about it that night. We came up with a name, Celtic Systems. And I figured out how to go about the various weird ways that you have to start businesses. You got to come up with papers and figure out how to pay taxes and how to create you know, articles of incorporation and everything and get uh, operating agreements created. But I went through all those hoops. And at the end of another week, I actually had a business and I just, that was it. And for the next, God, for the next 11 years, that is what I did is I, I ran my own small uh, computer networking in, uh, in a small home, small office business. Yeah. It, uh, that was a systems. hell of a ride, man. It was. In fact, I remember we hired you when I worked at, uh, when I was worked at the Bentonville school district, we hired you to work on some exchange issues with us because I That's knew you. Right. And so, you know, we had, we had hired you to do that, uh, because we had had some challenges. Uh, our exchange administrator had left, had been left in my lap. I was hosing it up royally. Um, come to find out it wasn't really that I was hosing it up. It was just, we had some settings that were <laughs> not good. And, you know, we ironed all that out and it was a good experience. Yeah. And then, uh, years later, actually a couple of years after I left that Bentonville job, I came and worked as a consultant with you at Caltech systems. In fact, I lived with you guys and hung out with you guys and, and worked on the business and, yeah. uh, you know, I, I had a really yeah. great time. I mean, you know, it, it needed to come to an end when it did as many things do. Um, but it was, uh, it was one of my favorite work experiences because it was fun because we were trying to build something and I yeah. learned a lot and, and it was fun too, because, you know, that was several years into my IT experience for me. Uh, and so you still had to suss me out to make sure that I had learned enough during that time frame, which was fun because see, you know, when I got into the information technology industry, it was uh, a friend of mine who ultimately ended up being my brother-in-law. Uh, a friend of mine came to me and said, Hey, how would you like to get into this computer stuff? And I'm like, I don't know anything about it, but I knew that he had a good job uh, or, you know, a job that paid better than most things around that area. So I thought, well, sure, I'll check it out. Uh, and so, you know, I basically had gone in and interviewed one, won the interview and they wanted me to start. And then the stark realization came in. I, I don't know what I'm doing at all. Like, at all and so i called you because again back to what you were saying earlier uh you know you were the guy in the network that knew the most about what was going on and so i you know i remember calling you and saying look i need a crash course i don't want to be stupid and i don't want to show up stupid so uh so you spent an entire day like full eight to ten hours just running me through how to build pcs and how they go together and dispelling myths that i had you know like i remember that I believed at the time because I didn't know any better. I believed at the time that because they were machines, they should all just work. Like there's, you know, that the, all the pieces should fit together, correct? Because it's a machine, right? They were made to work together. And then I remember you explaining to me, well, everybody has their own intellectual property, their own IP. And so to get that, they have to make all these different tweaks just enough. And the, you took that myth of it should just work to a new height and you were like it's really a damn miracle these things boot up at all because of all of the different proprietary junk that has to go in here for everybody to be okay that, that sounds a lot like something i would say yeah <laughs> oh i've used that a number of times throughout throughout my life to explain to other people who felt the same way i did early on uh that that was the case uh and then you know here we are 20 something years later 
both in the IT field. You, you know, you're well, no this longer... is about, this is really what it comes back to is, is once again, it's come back to our theme of connections, right? The, the fact that you and I were connected, the fact that we know all these things, the fact that Celtic systems went the way it did. People ask me, you know, what was it like starting your own business? And I say, I never started my own business. I didn't start Celtic systems. Celtic systems started me. Celtic systems came into being around me because of all the connections I had with all these people. And I had no choice but to just go with it. Celtic systems had its own mind about existing. And I just happened to be the vehicle through which it did. And that was because of all of the connections I had made. Eventually you gave up Celtic systems and moved on. Was there a particular reason why? Well, you know, as you say, you know, things kind of end when they need to things, things begin when they need to, and they end when they need to. And Celtic Systems and I reached the end of our mutually beneficial arrangement. And I went back to work because it's difficult never knowing where your next paycheck is coming from and when. And it's a lot of stress on a family and it's a lot of stress on an individual. It requires so many things. This is really funny because (laughs) the thing about knowing how to do something well means that you have to spend a lot of time fucking it up before you really understand how to do something well. And, and in so many times you have to spend, you have to spend so much time just destroying it and making every mistake to the point that it can no longer function until after you've completely broken it beyond repair. Do you finally realize, Oh, I know how I could have made this work now, <laughs> but it's far <laughs> too late at that point. Cause you've just got this box of broken gears and, and shattered pieces. Yeah. So, uh, so it, in that weird moment, I was like, well, I've learned everything I need to know to do this successfully, but I can no longer do it successfully because I don't have anything left to do it with. <laughs> um, that was okay. It, it was okay. Cause we were, we were tired of, uh, we were tired of the grind and we were tired of not knowing where the money was going to come from or how. So I went back to work industrial America, so to speak, commercial America. And I went back to work for the man and, and I've enjoyed a pretty decent career since. So now I, I want to talk about that a little bit because it was through one of your connections that you started working at a firm there in, in Springfield. And I'm hoping we can tell, tell the story in regards to your perspective on yourself and how you were viewed and so forth uh, at that company. Uh, because you okay. and I had talked uh, a little bit about um, uh well, you'd kind of pivoted a little bit. Let, let me step back just a bit, because uh, up until you kind of went back into the corporate world, you had kind of been an IT uh, information technology jack of all trades in some respects. You had certifications in Novell for anyone that remembers that. Uh, you had, you know, your MCSE. You had certifications in in Red Hat, if I remember correctly. I could be wrong there. Um, you had, you know, you, you taught in in colleges the Vaterots and and those. Yep. Post post secondary education. Yep. Post secondary educations. I did. Uh, I was a I was a teacher for 15 years in post secondary ed, which was great because you didn't actually need a degree in teaching to do it. Mm-hmm. Since it was since it was basically trade schools and technical education, all you really needed was a, a solid resume and, and years of experience, which I had. So. And you were great at getting at, at providing value to those students. Uh, a number of those students were still working in the industry today. But the thing that's interesting here is that you pivoted into security, right? I did. Uh, there's a couple interesting themes to me about what you said there, which is, and the first one of which is that jack of all trades mentality. I've been always someone who was fairly interested in the bright, shiny objects. You know, I'm kind of an emotional magpie uh, or an intellectual magpie in that sense, in which the next sparkly gem is always going to interest me. For a lot of my life, I've always thought that was pretty cool about myself. I thought, you know, I'm a, I'm a well-rounded individual. I know a lot of little things about a lot of little things. And I, I think that's pretty cool. And that was always a really, that was already really a benefit to my life. At that time, that's exactly how I got that job, how I pivoted into security because an ex-student of mine actually had done really well for himself and was fairly high up in, a, in an accounting firm and said, hey, you know, we're putting a security team together and we really need somebody who's basically an inch deep and a mile wide. And he said, I don't know anybody else that's as much of an inch deep and a mile wide as you are, which I, at that time I took as a compliment. I said, wow, okay. You know, that sounds really interesting. And so I I went over to that job and I I started going to security and I thought this is so cool because this kind of, this kind of jack of all trades, this kind of Renaissance person mentality has really, has really given me the success over time that began to sort of chafe on me because separating this a bit from my professional life, personally, 
I started to feel frustrated because as a, as a Renaissance person of a jack of all trades, uh, or as what some, of, some people refer to as a scanner, I don't know if you've heard that term before, I think we talked about it earlier, but if you're, if you're that kind of person, you can feel that that's a pretty cool thing. But for me, over time, it really started to feel like I would always get 10% into something, but never finish it. And it became really frustrating to feel like I knew about 10% of a hundred different things, but I didn't know any more than 10% about any of those things. So you become a jack of all trades, but then later you start to feel like you're just a master of nothing. And that really started wearing on me because I felt like, you know, does this mean that I'm a lazy person? Does this mean that I'm just too lazy to, to pursue something to its end point? Why can't I get to 20%? Why can't I get to 50%? Hell, why can't I get to 100%? Why is it that I can never just get done anything that I start? Why am I just this incredible starter and just this terrible finisher? But uh, in, in getting back to the professional part of that, it, it worked out real well for professional reasons because in the field that I'm in now, you definitely need just you definitely need to just know a, a bunch of, tr it's like all, being in security is almost like playing Trivial Pursuit, you know, all day long. You just have to constantly pull out of your brain the most trivial, weird, obscure knowledge in order to encounter the situations and, and deal with the conflicts you have there. And so that, that has served me well, professionally speaking, but personally it's left me feeling kind of hollow, which is why in this later part of my life, I'm really trying to understand what the reason is behind that. And I kind of have, and for anybody that's interested in, in hearing my opinion on this, what I've found is that it really doesn't have anything to do with how much effort I ever wanted to put into anything. Because as you have said, there have been a lot of things in my life that I have worked really, really hard for physically, mentally, emotionally. I put an enormous amount of effort on the table for the things that I really cared for and the things that I really believed in. So why is it that I can always do something if I have to do it, but I can almost never do something if I want to do it. And I realized that it didn't really have anything to do with laziness or personal effort. It was that the thing that I really, really, really love about the things that interest me is not knowing anything about it. And when I first start learning about something, when I first get an interest in something, I see something and I go after it. I'm like, oh, it's cool. I want to learn about that. I realize that I'm in this incredible experience, almost like this drug high of just learning about all these things that I've never known before. But as with everything, whether it's learning how to play an instrument, whether it's learning how to pursue an art, whether it's learning how to pursue a technology, with everything, you reach this point where the learning new things starts to even out. And you're not really going to learn anything new from that point without putting in a cycle of repetitive effort. For example, let's take the guitar, perfect example. You can learn some fingered chords, you can learn a G, you can learn a C, you can learn an E, you can learn a D, and you can think this is awesome. I'm learning how to put my fingers on these things, I'm learning how to strum these strings to make these sounds, and I'm learning how to play these songs. But at that point, there's gonna be a plateau that you're not learning anymore necessarily but the only way to be able to get to the next point where you really start learning again is to really, you got to really practice to make your fingerings clean. You got to really play every day. You really got to get your fingers to the point that they can now start to do bar chords because bar chords is the next thing that you need to learn because that's going to open up the neck for you in terms of the progression of the scales and the notes. And then you start learning more from there, but you can't get there unless you put in all of this repetitive effort and that's fine. But the problem with me is that I never told myself, I never laid myself out that realistic map of like, okay, Eric, this is going to be super fun for two months. And then it's going to be another two months of just not very much fun, but just raw effort and practice. But then, Eric, then remember that at that point, there will be a whole nother period of time where you will just start learning the stuff that you've never learned again, followed by another period of effort followed by another period of learning. I've never taught myself that lesson. I've never really sat down on myself and said, look, Eric, this is how it goes. These are cycles, life, everything, experiences, skills, techniques, all this stuff comes in a cycle. You have to go through this glorious, you know, blossoming knowledge garden to get to the point that then, once you've done that, you've got to water the fucking flowers for the next, you know, month of Sundays. 
And then you can start learning more because then they start blooming and blossoming and turning into other things that you can then start learning about. And if you don't understand that, or if you don't tell yourself that, then you're going to become somebody like me, who is a jack of all trades, but a master of none, because you don't remind yourself, you don't teach yourself that that's just how it works, that the fun is still coming. It's not that the fun is gone, because that's the, that's the lie I told myself. That's the danger, is that, well, now I'm not learning anything new, so I guess this isn't fun anymore. And that's why I couldn't get through that barrier. That's why I could never get down that road. But that's what I feel like I'm learning now. And that's a valuable lesson I'm trying to, I'm trying to tell myself after, after spending my whole life of telling myself all these lies about what my life and what myself is. Now I'm really, really struggling to dig up what the truths are. And that's, that's taken a lot more effort, but it's been a lot more worthwhile journey. It's a, certainly an interesting perspective on the jack of all trades uh, sort of mantra. I like to say that I'm a jack of all trades, master of some instead of master of none, uh, because I feel like that there are some things that uh, I've done pretty well with throughout the years. Although I know a lot of things about a lot of things, I just don't a mile wide, an inch deep, kind of a CCIE sort of approach to life, if you will. It, I find that, <laughs> I've never heard it put that way, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, for those of you who don't know, CCIE is uh, is a Cisco certification, and they're kind of viewed as one of the. Um, I, I, my perspective has always been a godlike sort of certification in regards to networking, because it, it in the CCIEs that I have known have to, have used that uh, analogy with me before, which is, hey, you know, we, we don't delve really deep in any one particular protocol, but, you know, and it's not about putting things together the way that they're supposed to be put together. It's how do we diagnose what has been put together in such crazy, weird ways with, you know, token ring networks and so forth that, you know, you, you couldn't yeah. possibly imagine was going to be the case and make it work somehow. And, and that is the strength to a jack of all trades is the ability to pull all of the different information and knowledge that you have learned over the years and apply it to whatever task you're working on at the moment. And so I think there's a real strength in jack of all trades. And I think that uh, there's a real strength in, in learning a little bit about a lot of things. Uh, I've never been good at, at the quote unquote ones and zeros in information technology. I came into information technology late in life, uh, comparatively. Uh, most of my peers were already playing with computers and stuff when they were, you know, eight, 10 years old because they were more accessible at that point. You know, uh, I, I didn't get into it until my twenties, you know, so I'm years behind in that respect. Yeah. But the thing that has been a blessing to me, uh, if I can use that word, the thing that's, that's been good for me is I've been able to apply a lot of thought processes from areas outside of technology to be able to enhance what I do inside of it. And that is where the strength of a jack of all trades really comes from. Uh, by the same token. That's a good point. I, I like that. I, I like the I like that you look at it that way. That's that's also a that's also a helpful way for me too to to frame it that way. Well, because I struggle with a lot of the things that you're talking about myself, uh, and you're one hundred percent right when you say you feel like you, you've not learned anything. You feel like you know I'm useless. Uh, it's it's very it's kind of the imposter syndrome of the jack of all trades, which is you're like, okay, some people, they follow these paths and this guy is a, is a, is a SME in what he does, a subject matter expert. Uh, you know, that's amazing, you know, and I marvel at that. I'm sure you do too, uh, at people who are able to, you know, this is what I do. You know, every time I leave a oh, job, without a doubt, without a doubt, I do. <laughs> Every time I leave a job or a position or something, or I think about it, I think to myself, what the hell am I going to do? I mean, who's, you know, who's going to hire me now? Like, well, you know what I, you know, I have all of these issues about it and let's, let's be pretty fair. I've worked for uh, at least three fortune 500 companies in, in technology, in, in their, you know, upper echelon of technology pieces, storage and, and, and networking and so forth. I have a very good resume oh, yeah. in regards to technology. Um, and it was a resume that some people are envious of, as I come to find out. 
But at the same moment, I'm not confident in it as much as you would think I am because I, like you, see myself as an inch deep, uh, you know, a mile wide. And I know there's lots of benefits to that. I know that there's benefits to my being able to communicate well. I know there's these, but I don't necessarily see that value as much as some other people see that value. And again, going back to getting out of our heads, because that's one of the most dangerous places we can ever be, is in our heads without outside perspective, without being able to see outside the bubble, whether that's, you know, a relationship bubble or a self-awareness bubble. You know, once you're in a bubble and you're the only person that the only entity that's there trying to figure things out. It's a scary place. And the things that you think make sense, they don't. And when you say them out loud, you understand, oh, that doesn't make any sense at all. Why am I thinking this? It's part of our, it's kind of our, part of our build. And so I, I, I can see the struggle. I can feel the struggle. I know the struggle of being a jack of all trades, master of none. It's a scary, scary place because you never feel like you're confident in what you're doing uh, because you don't know as much as other people that you've, you know, I, I marvel at my peers sometimes at, at, at the, the things that they're able to know and not just in, in the information technology field, but in other fields too. I'm just like, wow, how impressive is it that you're able to get to that level with this particular piece of art or this, we'll use music as a good example here. Uh, you know, especially, you know, you were talking about guitar. We both play guitar a little bit. We've both, you know, studied it a little bit. Um, and I, I've done some songwriting. And so, you know, there's the basic songwriting, right? You write some lyrics, you write some chords to go with it. Uh, a melody somewhere emerges out of that and you have a song, but there are some songwriters who will agonize over every piece of that song. Like, are all these words the right words for this particular line? And yeah. then are all these notes the right notes for this particular? And when, when I listen to some uh, artists talk about song composition and the level that they can go to, to try to make it a great song is it's mind blowing to me because I think to myself, I don't think I could ever get into the minutia to that degree that I, I could write songs that way. And there's part of me that thinks because of that, I'll never write a great song. The flip side, the truth of that is that I'm spending time in my brain and I'm spending time in my head and I'm critiquing myself before I even do anything. And that's the danger uh, of it because then you never really go after the things you really do want to go after. Um, I've always wanted to write a great song and I, I feel like I've written a few good ones, uh, but I've never written the great one. And in my mind, I think, man, the really great the really great tunes out there are written by people that are really willing to do that minutia work. It's the same in the IT field. Uh, you know, I've always told people I'm not really great at ones and zeros. Uh, and for anyone who doesn't know, the ones and zeros are, are basically the binary uh, code behind, behind computers. Uh, I remember reading, uh, was it Linus Torvald's book, uh, Just for Fun? And it was a fascinating read because he was trying to do this thing. He, he eventually, he was the creator of Linux or Linux for whoever uh, is out there. If you don't know, um, he's the one that, that basically created that variant from, uh, from Unix. The interesting thing is, is that, you know, he did a lot of that writing in assembler and uh, assembler language. And that's the language that translates, I guess, if you will, and, and you might be able to, to speak to this better than me, but that's, that assembler language is basically machine language. And the thing that I found interesting in, in that book, reading his story was, uh, he was like, oh, well, I think this could be better done in assembler language. So I'll just learn it. And that's what he did. He just learned this for all intents and purposes, really hard machine language so that he could create something that he wanted to create. And I've always been envious of that, but I've always taken it with a grain of, of hope 
in that if I want to learn something, I can just do it. I just choose to do it. And then I can. For people like you and I, we have a tendency to go, yeah, we can do anything we want to. And then we'll, we'll go as far as it's interesting. And then we'll be like, I don't really know if I want to do more than this. Like I've really, I've learned this and so forth. And yeah, if I can get to the other side, then, you know, there's going to be like more fun there, but it's hard to get to the other side if, if you're not made to do it or you don't have the passion for it. And I've never discovered a passion in my life to such a degree that I really wanted to get into the ones and zeros because there's so much fun stuff to learn about out there. Well, there's a thing to learn about being uh, a mile wide and an inch deep kind of person. And it's taken me a long time to understand that lesson as well, which is that, and if I can romanticize it a little bit in metaphor, you know, if you ever looked in puddles on a sidewalk after a rainy day, you'll realize that even a puddle a couple millimeters deep can reflect perfectly everything that you look at. So the, the lesson here is that it only takes about a millimeter of water to be able to reflect an entire world from another person's view or from your view. And so what you have to understand is that no matter how deep you are, no matter how shallow you feel you are, you are still capable of reflecting the whole life of experiences that you have. You're still capable of, of, of providing that, that insight, that view of, of, of all that information. You're still capable of immense, immense value, uh, even in that. And if you want to change from being somebody who is, who is a jack of all trades, it's certainly, that's certainly an admirable to do. It's certainly something I'm trying to figure out how to, how to navigate. But I, I also have had to start at a place where I've learned that at least who I am has some value. And, and it may have immense value. Uh, in fact, uh, and for yeah. any of any, any of the readers out there, uh, Deep Work is a book I would recommend in regards to this uh, topic. Um, I can't remember the guy's name. It's Cal something or other. Um, I'll probably put it in the show notes. But Deep Work was one of those things that really helped me with this um, because he talks in the book about, I think it's Cal Newport. Uh, he talks about um, being the superpower, being able to focus basically on one task and really block out all your, your other distractions. Uh, and I, after I read that book, I went ahead and decided to use some of the methodologies. Here's the fun piece to that is that I was able to finish writing another album's worth of songs in about six months by following that methodology. Some of those songs had been 15 years in the making. Like I had been trying to finish them for a really long time and I couldn't do it. I couldn't figure out how to do it. But then when I applied some of those methodologies, it really helped. Um, so I just wanted to put that out there for anybody yeah. listening that there, there is, there are some things that, that might resonate with you if you're in a similar place on, on the journey that we are or have been. Yeah, about, about learning as a Renaissance person. You know, knowledge is a real thorny path for people like us because something is always going to lead to something else and our interest is always going to lead us off on a, on a trouble, uh, on a shoot or a bird walk or like you say. For example, I, I decided at one point that I wanted to learn how to be a better writer. So I picked up this book about writing. I forget what it is. But in that book, about, eh, about 20 pages or so through that book, uh, it, it made reference to another book about the uh, nature of writing, and it referred to Stephen King's book on writing. So I thought, man, well, if I want to understand what this book is going to say, because it referred to Stephen King's book, I should read Stephen King's book. So I pick up Stephen King's book at that point, and I start reading, figuring, okay, I just get through this, and I go back to my original book. In the Stephen King book, it refers to the nature of creativity and refers to a book called Creativity Inc., which was written by the CEO of Pixar. And so I thought, well, that sounds really interesting. So if I want to really grasp what Stephen King's trying to tell me, I'll, I'll go read this book. And so I immediately start reading this book. About half of the way through this book, it refers to creating stories and how they deal with, you know, writing screenplays and stuff. And that points to a book called The Three-Story Method. So I start reading The Three-Story Method. Well, about 25% of the way through the three-story method, they describe that a lot of the principles they do come from underlying things that were began by 
uh, let's see, who was it? Aristotle, who wrote a book called the, who wrote, who had a thing called the Poetics. So I start reading the Poetics before I'm done with Creativity Inc. And then in Poetics, you learn that actually much of what he said was based on the work of Aristotle in the Republic. So now here I am, like eight books down the line, and I'm reading goddamn <laughs> Plato's Republic to try and understand how I can get through the next seven books that I have to finish. And so what I want to say to anybody who's like me is that be aware that the past and the future are both continuums and you can travel as far as you can in either direction. Just understand that it never ends either way and just keep that, keep that knowledge of where you want to end up and make sure that you don't just spend all of your time, you know, looking back down the road. Well, there you go, dragons. Pretty cool stuff, huh? You know, I've just been so lucky to have people like Eric in my life throughout the years. And so I really wanted to share some of his voice with you. You know, as you can tell, we have a, a very strong mutual friendship and we really trust each other. But that's because we've spent 20 years getting to know each other so that we can have conversations like this. And it's important, I think, to put these things out into the world. So there we are. Uh, I'm just going to keep this nice and short and sweet. And then we'll be back next week with the final part of Eric's podcast interview because I couldn't get it all in 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 two so we're going to go for three and then we'll, we'll move on from there uh, so I hope you enjoyed this episode I can't wait for you to get the one next week as well so as always remember you might be plain and you might be ordinary but you're a dragon and you can do amazing things and we can't wait to hear your voice in this world